Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. We're going to read the first 13 verses. It's a very significant passage. It's the temptations of Jesus. So Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Hear God's word to us this morning. Luke 4, 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you and on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And the grass withers, the flowers fade, and this good word endures forever. Thanks be to God. Let's pray this famous prayer in the history of the church together as we ask God's blessing upon the preaching of his word. Let's pray together. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scripture to be written for our instruction, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by steadfastness and by the encouragement of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast to the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who is alive with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. So, right after Jesus, you remember his baptism, last week we did the genealogy, but at his baptism, right after that, when Jesus publicly and officially accepts his role as redeemer, he does that there, he departs from the Jordan River where he was baptized and he withdraws from the crowds in order to spend deep, unbroken fellowship with his father in fasting and meditation and prayer for all he has accepted to do. To do all that, the son needs deep communion with his father. And so he's full of the Holy Spirit, the text says, and he's led in the spirit further into the wilderness. 
And from conception, we know that he's been full of the Spirit, but at this point, it's unique. At the baptism, remember, the Spirit descends upon him like a dove, and the point is he's equipping him specifically for what he's got to do. And so we see also in the baptism that that filling of the Spirit happens in a certain context. The, the, the fullness of the Spirit to equip him and empower him and comfort him and encourage him happens when he offers himself unreservedly to his Father and when he's spending time in prayer. And that's meant to be a model for us as we offer ourselves unreservedly to the Father in our callings, as we beseech him for it within our callings, God fills us with his Spirit for what he's called us to do. Well, the Spirit leads him into the wilderness to fast and pray for 40 days. And that 40 days is significant, as you know. It recalls when Moses received the Ten Commandments up on Sinai. The two times, both times, he was up there on top of Sinai, 40 days, neither eating nor drinking. And that time of 40 days is meant to prepare Moses to be the leader he needed to be for the people at that critical juncture in their history when they were becoming a nation. It also recalls Elijah. And you remember Elijah, he had that revival on Mount Carmel, remember? But then Jezebel goes after him and he remembers to his terrible depression and discouragement that the revival wasn't really gonna take off. He runs for his life, significantly, for 40 days and 40 nights until he gets back to Sinai and he goes up on Sinai like Moses did. It's called Horeb there, but it's Sinai, the same mountain. And God, you remember, speaks to him in a low whisper. And what God does at that point, that critical juncture in Israel's history is he reconstitutes the whole nation, gives him instructions for their ongoing stability and reform. So like those two very significant Old Testament leaders, Jesus fasts 40 days and 40 nights. But the, but the deal is that they were just faint anticipations of the real critical juncture, not only for the nation, but for the world. For the world. And Jesus is getting prepared for it. But the deal is that this communion is especially marked by something else. All during this time, all during these 40 days of fellowship with his father, the devil is going after him. He's bombarding him with temptations. It's 40 days of temptation. So, though the Spirit sends him for a time of fellowship, leads him out there for that, he also leads him into temptation. The Spirit leads him into this. Jesus didn't do anything wrong. And it tells us the Spirit may lead us into those situations. So, Jesus' preparation is not only his baptism, It's not only a time of fellowship with his father, but it's also a time of testing. Testing on the part of God for his good, temptation on the part of the evil one to destroy him. You know, 1 Peter speaks like that. 1 Peter says, you've been given a hope that's imperishable, indestructible, beautiful, kept in heaven for you. I mean, it's kept in heaven for you. And not only that, but he's taking you there by the hand Though now, you might have to undergo fiery trials that have the purpose of refining your faith more precious than gold. 
The deal is you don't know if you have living true faith in Jesus until the Father tests you. On the Father's end, it's positive for us and we need it. But the devil, throughout this 40-day barrage of Jesus and in your life, it's for your destruction. Well, Jesus is tempted like a man, like any man, common to man, so that he can sympathize with us. But even more, he's tempted as Messiah. There are temptations that go at him as God's Messiah and Redeemer for sinners. So it's, it's very important to note that right after Jesus takes on his mission, right out of the gate, the devil attacks him. And the reason he attacks him is that because every fiber of his being, the devil opposes your salvation. He, he hates the gospel. He's hell-bent on fighting against it tooth and nail. He wants you with him and he doesn't want you with God. So if he can derail Jesus right out of the gate, it's over before he ever gets going. And what's been going on in my mind is on D-Day when those amphibious vessels are getting close to the shore and those German guns are trained on those ramps, trained on those gates. And if they can hit those soldiers and eliminate them before they ever start the assault, it's what they want. And that's what the devil's doing with Jesus. It's an all out warfare to derail him. But let's just ask, you know, is it really a struggle for Jesus? Are these temptations really an issue for him? I mean, he is the God man. You know, so, can he really sympathize with me in those terribly intense temptations that I go through? Or is he kind of untouchable? In some significant ways, the temptations of Jesus are different. In, in some ways, they're easier. And, and that's just to say that since he is holy, he doesn't have evil desires that arise from a fallen heart. He doesn't have the traitor within that wants to be tempted and wants to fall. He doesn't have to deal with that. He's holy. In that sense, they're easier. Furthermore, the fact that he is pure makes him more disgusted with sin. However, however, there are some ways in which these temptations of Jesus are much more forceful than you will ever experience. Now, how can that be? Well, on one end, he has all power at his disposal. He can do anything, which means temptations to use it are much more intense. The greater the power, the greater the temptations are. We, we know that when we are in a situation when we have ability, availability, and no accountability. And you know how temptations are stronger to you when you find yourself in that situation. It's even more for Jesus. He, he has all power, and so they're strong. It's like, if you remember the Lord of the Rings, you know, those powerful people, when tempted by the ring, it was much more severe than those weak little hobbits. They knew what they could do with it. Well, also, the fact that he never gave in to the devil's temptations, made them more 
intense for him. He experienced the full force of temptation. You know, you and I give in real easily. We just lay down before temptation. So we never know how strong it would be if we really endured that temptation to the end. It's like what C.S. Lewis once said, he goes, look, the French didn't know how strong the German army was. The British did. The French caved in after a few weeks. The British fought tooth and nail to the end. If we give up in five minutes, we don't know what temptation would be like an hour later. Jesus never gave in. Like for 40 days, we see it here. Daily going after it. Well, furthermore, the fact that he's utterly pure means that he feels temptation more acutely. It hurts more. And then finally, the devil especially comes at Jesus when he's the hungriest, the weakest, the most exhausted, and feeling the most isolated, he comes at him with his worst three temptations. I mean, he's a, he's a savior who really can sympathize with you and give you the help you need. So at his baptism, the father declares over him, you are my, son, my beloved son, with you I'm well pleased. I mean, what a declaration. It's both a declaration of him being his sonship by nature. I've always loved you and been delighted in you. And it's also a declaration over him in his sonship by role. You remember in scripture, sonship is a role, it's a task, it's a mission. Because the son is the king, he represents God for the people. And so the father's looking over him and seeing that his son has accepted this role, this mission, and he wants him to know that he affirms him, he applauds him, he approves him right at the outset for doing so. And it fills his tank, fills his sails. He's got the endorsement and the affection and the approval of his father as he steps out. And so right away, the devil attacks him and all the temptations are attacks upon his sonship. They're, they're temptations uh, targeting his view of his sonship. And what the devil wants to do is get him to twist it and warp it to get Jesus to use his power and his privilege for himself. Use it for yourself. It's all yours, use it for yourself. So the three temptations, another way to view them is that they are attacks upon Jesus's commitment to Deuteronomy 6, which is the creed of Israel. We read it today. Jesus is gonna quote from Deuteronomy 6 through 8. He's got this on his mind. There are attacks on Jesus. Are you gonna be the son who loves the Lord your God with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his might? So the true son of God who could represent, redeem the sinful people, he must be like this. That's his disposition and mentality. And he wants to derail Jesus before he can live like the faithful son. So behind this, Jesus is a new Adam. We've talked about Adam at the baptism and the genealogy. Adam was supposed to obey God and bring blessing to the world. That was his role. He was the son of God. But instead, Adam, he wasn't content with that status, that privilege or power. He wanted more. He wanted to be God. He wanted to use it for himself, and he plunged the world into curse. Well, Jesus is also supposed to be the new Israel. 
You know, uh, in grace, God redeemed Israel from Egypt. The point is to be instruments of his grace to the world, to show his gospel to the world, but Israel failed in her sonship too. Instead of extending grace to the world, Israel wanted to use it for herself. So Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. He's entering a world that's suffering under failed sonship, both Adam and Israel. He's gonna be tested like Adam to be the faithful son. He's gonna be tested like Israel to be a faithful Israel for the salvation of the world. Finally, we have somebody. So how does the first temptation attack Jesus's view of his sonship? How does it attack it? Well, the devil tempts a very hungry Jesus this way. If you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And we, 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 we read that and it's like, what's the big deal about that? Just command it to become bread. But you see, it's a direct temptation about the Father's provision of Jesus. It's provision. See, God led Jesus in the wilderness to fast and pray. And if God led him to fast and pray, then God is gonna be one who directs him to eat. He's gonna be the one that changes his command for him. And he hadn't done so yet. Jesus was supposed to wait for his Father's direction when to eat. So he was to be the faithful Israel trusting God to provide in the wilderness. Instead of grumbling and complaining like Israel grumbled and complained in the wilderness, to give in would to become discontent and dissatisfied with God's providential care over him. It would be to say, look, I can use my power and my privilege as son of God for me to satisfy my appetites my cravings, my desires in the way I want and not in the way you've provided for me. And, and we feel that temptation too. I mean, that's the basic temptation. I have desires and I wanna fulfill them now and in my way. I mean, our culture lives this way. We want what we want when we want it. Ed Welch, the Christian counselor, says we worship self through our desires. That's just our culture. That's us. That's us. Another scholar, I was reading a book this week that said modernity is rationalized sexual misbehavior. <laughs> it's a description of the whole ethos of the modern man. It said, look, it's just rationalized sexual misbehavior. We, we, we have desires. We want to fulfill them in the way we want and we see the unraveling of our culture as a result, as a family as a result. Well, how does our new Adam, new Israel, the true son, deal with this, this basic temptation in the midst of all kind of hunger that he has? So as with all three temptations, he, he counters the devil with the word, with the, with the sword of the spirit. You know, Ephesians 6, you take that sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And this is a key application of the text. God gives us the word to defend ourselves from the devil's assaults. If we're not in the word, we're unarmed. Like we're laying down our weapons to the devil. We have ourselves to blame for that. So in particular, just notice what he's been meditating on in the word during these 40 days. He's been meditating on Israel in the wilderness, heading to the promised land in Deuteronomy six through eight 
where God's guiding them, the lessons they learned in the wilderness to know how to flourish in the promised land, how to live the good life, God's telling them. And he's helping them apply that creed to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength to your daily life. So Jesus says, look, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, a fundamental principle. And so what was God telling Israel? What was Jesus affirming here? God's word is more necessary to life than physical food. As hungry as he is for bread, he's hungrier for God's word. God revealed, God's revealed will for him is good even though it's hard. It's for his best even though it's not easy, he's saying. He's saying he will follow God's command for his appetites and desires, not his own. He's saying he will be content with God's providential leading and not complain and contest it. All that's right there. It's a whole different outlook on life. You've given me desires, but I'm gonna use it in the way you've commanded me, Jesus says. Well, how does the second temptation attack Jesus's view of sonship, the second one? The first one's provision. So it seems in a vision, the devil takes Jesus up and shows him most likely the whole Roman empire is what he probably shows him. Somehow in some vision, I mean, maybe physically took him up but probably a vision. And he says to him, to you I will give all the authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it'll all be yours. So the question immediately rises is, I mean, was that even a temptation? Does the devil have the authority to give the kingdoms of the earth? Was it a hollow promise? Well, in a way it wasn't. It was, he could do it in a way you know, the Bible calls him the prince of the world. That's a significant description, the prince of the world. You see, when Adam sinned, Adam was wearing a crown. He was the king. He was God's king to bring blessing. When Adam sinned, he gave his crown to the devil. And the devil exerted his power upon the world. Made the world miserable. So the devil holds the kingdom of the world in bondage to sin. At the same time, he doesn't hold them absolutely. I mean, God's the ultimate owner of every square inch of creation. Um, everything in it, he permits the devil to hold sway up to the point he lets him. But even more than that, we see the new Adam is on the scene. And the point of Jesus coming is he's about to recover that crown from the devil. So at this point, the devil does speak truth in a way, but he's speaking it to the one that really owns it. So how's the devil seeking to twist Jesus' view of his sonship here? Well, what he wants Jesus to do is compromise with him in order to get what the Father promised him. In one sense, it's a temptation for power and glory. We could say for possessions, for popularity. I mean, it's all in the balance. It's a temptation for all of that. Like, don't you want that? Isn't that what you're here for, the devil's saying? But it's more than that because the father has already promised all these things to the son. All the way back in Psalm 2, the father said, look, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. All he has to do is ask the father. They're his. 
Everything's his. So what's the devil saying to Jesus right here? Well, he's saying this. He goes, look, you can have all this. You can have all this without going to the cross. You can do it the easy way. All you gotta do is bow your head to me and compromise with me and I'll give you everything already right now. You don't have to go this route you're talking about. In some sense, the devil knows what's going on. He's trying to keep Jesus from heading to the cross. Take it now the easy way. The devil's saying, bend your knee to me and you'll get the nations the easy way without suffering, without heartache, without having to serve anybody. I'll just give it to you. So it's a temptation really of the pathway. The first is provision, the second is the pathway. How are you gonna get it? How are you gonna go about this, getting what God has promised you as the son? And we see this temptation alive and well in our world, don't we? Paul David Tripp says, the fall has affected us this way. Rather than loving people and using things to express it, people loved things and used people to get them. We're all about using folks to get what we want. We don't want to serve and give ourselves away for others. We want to be served by others. Again, we see how this has torn our world apart, how it breaks families apart, how it breaks cultures apart. Well, what does Jesus, our new Adam, the new Israel, the faithful son, say to this? Well, he counters it again with the sword of the spirit out of Deuteronomy 6 through 8. And he says this, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. And so essentially what Jesus is saying in this text is, I'm not gonna worship you. I'm not going to do things your way. I'm not going to get the kingdoms of the world in the world's way. I first and foremost worship the Father. I'm going to trust him. I'm going to seek the kingdoms of the world along the pathway he has traced out for me, which is the cross. I'm going to love and serve people for their good, even if it costs me everything, and I know it's going to, but I'm gonna do it. That's my path. He tries to take him away from the cross. He tries to take us away from the pathway. So in what day does the devil tempt Jesus in the third temptation? How does that attack his sonship? Well, probably it's another vision. The devil takes Jesus to Jerusalem, sets him on a high pinnacle of the temple, and he says this to him. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. I mean, on one side you go, why would he want to do that? Do that? Why would he want to throw himself down? It doesn't seem like a temptation, but it is. So what's going on here? First, just notice the devil's quote in scripture. These are two quotes from Psalm 91. The devil knows the word. Like it goes straight at him with the word. It, the gall to quote the word of God to the word of God made flesh. But he does it. The nerve of him. And comically, you kind of go, and Jesus already bested him twice with the word, so he takes the same weapon. I mean, you can see that our culture uses the word in a twisted manner often. Even those slogans our culture throws out as God is love or don't judge or the truth will set you free. The way those have been co-opted in our culture is a twisting of the intent of those passages. Well, so what's the temptation then? 
And they're, they're just also involved, we could say a lot, but I think the main point is the temptation about protection. So we have provision, the pathway, and protection. So keep in mind this final temptation, it's taking place in Jerusalem. That's, that's significant. Jesus is going to be sentenced to the cross in Jerusalem. I mean, it's like the devil knows it. Jesus knows it, it's gonna end up here. To some degree, the devil knows what's going to happen. He's trying to stop it. He tempts Jesus, okay, so you're choosing the pathway. Do you really think the Father's gonna come through for you? Is he gonna really take care of you? When the, when the Jews and the Romans come at you, is he really gonna be there for you? When, when sinful man has his way and they kill you, do you really believe the Father's gonna protect you? I mean, go ahead and force the issue now. You know, make him show you he's for you. Throw yourself down so that he has to come through and prove his protection over you. Like, like reveal it now before you get there. So do we face this sort of temptation? Well, in one sense, we, we face it in just our anxiety and fear that, that we're not safe and secure. I mean, that's under that. That's a, that's a basic fear of ours. But it's also presumption, and presumption's a really dangerous thing. It's, it's to presume on God's goodness and his care over us. I mean, one way we do this is that God says he's gonna persevere us to glory, but sometimes we sit loose to the fact that he perseveres us to glory by preserving us in the means of grace. Like it's by the word and by resisting sin that he perseveres us all the way to glory, but we indulge in sin and sit loose to the word and still presume that God's gonna persevere us to glory. It, it's this sin. Well, how does Jesus counter the devil? How does he counter him? Well, he again quotes scripture. It's again from Deuteronomy six through eight. He's been meditating on this passage and so he says to the devil, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And so that's an account, it refers to an event in Exodus, that event of Massa when Israel was so thirsty, so thirsty, and they just cried out to God because they couldn't see any water inside. They didn't know how they're gonna satisfy their thirst. They're in the middle of the desert and they cry out, is the Lord among us or not? I mean, what a bold statement. So in effect, they're saying, if God's really here, let him prove it right now by showing up and giving us something to drink. You know, have you ever put a demand on God like that? Like if you're real, if you, if you love me, you're gonna do this, you're gonna show up this way. So Moses warns Israel, that's not faith, that's presumption and unbelief. And so Jesus responds to the devil, I'm not going to force God to prove himself. I'm gonna trust him. He's my father, I'm his son. Even though I know I'm heading to a terrifying place, I'm gonna be back here in Jerusalem, I'm gonna suffer the wrath of God at the cross. I know that's before me, I'm trusting him now. I'm not gonna presume, I'm not gonna make him prove to me. The provision, the pathway, and protection, they're basic temptations, but underneath, underneath all of them, there's a lie. 
He's feeding Jesus a lie about his father. He's not good and he's not dependable. He's feeding Jesus a lie about where the good life is found. Satisfy your cravings, stay at the center of your life, and maintain control of your future. Like if you do that, that's living, that's life. And we, we feel that temptation in us that makes us sit loose to God being our loving father, us being his adopted sons and daughters in Christ. And they're ruinous, they're ruinous temptations. We fall to them all the time. In a second, we're gonna read Jesus, what a friend for sinners. And there's this wonderful line that says, Jesus, what a strength in weakness. Let me hide myself in him. Tempted, tried, and sometimes failing, he my strength, my victory wins. I wish it would just sometimes, sometimes failing. But we fail, our sin is deep. We, we buy lies about God and buy lies about the good life. I mean, we deserve the wrath and judgment of God. We don't love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that's why we're created. And yet this passage is so joyous and hopeful for us because the whole point of this passage is that Jesus was tempted, tried, never failing. And that's why he came. He was tested to the nth degree in the wilderness along the same basic temptations that we fail in over and over again that merit the judgment of God. And he succeeded even to the point of the cross of Christ where he took your judgment upon himself and owned it as if it were his and suffered torment in your place which is what is due of our rebellion against God. And he triumphed at the resurrection and was welcomed into glory and you're welcomed into glory with him and you know God is his father, as your father. And he looks at you and says, you're my beloved son and daughter with you. I'm well pleased in Christ who never failed because I sent him to redeem you because I wanted you. This is gospel truth. He did it on our behalf. And therefore also in glory, he does sympathize with your temptations. And he feels that force that you feel and he gives you help in time of need. It's as if he says, I've been there. I know what it's like. And I triumphed for you. You're mine. You're not going anywhere and I will give you help in time of need in order that I can direct you in the life you were created and redeemed to live, which is for your good and God's glory. What a beautiful passage, and that's the faithful son on our behalf. And all God's people said, amen. Let's stand.